Truly grateful to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, if you would open them, please, to Mark chapter 12. Mark Mark chapter 12. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark, but I've been missing the last three Sundays due to illness, and I am so grateful today for filling in and speaking, and am somewhat amazed, I shouldn't be, that some of what Dave spoke about applies to what we're going to look at today in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 11 marks the beginning of the Passion Week. On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. On Monday, Jesus curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple area, as we saw two events that are very closely related. Then on Tuesday, Jesus is questioned about his authority to do what he does, and he responds by asking what they think of John's baptism. Jesus then tells the parable of the tenants, and this is a major turning point in the Gospel of Mark because we were told earlier that Jesus only spoke in parables in essence so that people wouldn't understand. They understand this parable, that in fact he is telling the parable about them. Then his opponents try to trap him by asking him about paying taxes to Caesar. Because if he says, no, you shouldn't pay, then they'll tell the Romans. And if he says, yes, you should, then his fellow Jews will not be happy with him. Uh, This is in chapter 12, if you want to look, verse 15. Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. It's a truly amazing passage. What is on the coin, the inscription, the image of Caesar? What is on us as human beings, the inscription and the image of the creator? Now we continue, and it's still Tuesday. Tuesday was a very busy day, that Passion Week. And now there is another group of opponents who try to attack Jesus. This time it is the Sadducees. They are the priest class. They rule the temple. They control the sacrificial system. Um, They are the descendants of Aaron and his sons. By the way, we think the name Sadducee comes from Zadok, who was the high priest during the reign of King David. We've come across the Pharisees a number of times, um, as early as chapter 3, They are quite opposed to Jesus and what he teaches. Um, He claimed the right, the prerogative to forgive sins. This they cannot forgive. He violated their traditions about the Sabbath, about fasting, and about ritual cleansing. He associated with tax collectors and sinners. He had a strong influence on the crowd. I think this was one of the big issues. And in essence, Jesus was the opposite of the Pharisees. But Jesus hasn't dealt with the Sadducees yet because they are in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where the sacrifices take place. Jesus has been in Galilee. Now he has come into Judea. He has entered into Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple, which is their domain. And so now we're going to have a confrontation between them and Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 18. 
Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without having any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It's interesting. The first thing I would tell you that we should note about this is that the Sadducees were materialists. Dave spoke about this in his recap of his series on the church and science. They did not believe in the resurrection. We're told more about them, by the way, in Acts 23, that they say there is no resurrection and there are no angels or spirits. That is to say there's uh, non-metaphysical things. There are no non-material things. Everything has to be material, which sort of fits with what they do. They do the temple. They do the sacrifices. They follow the rituals. And so the idea of some ethereal, yeah, that, that doesn't work for them. So they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or spirits. They are pure materialists. Okay? But also tell you that much that we know about the Sadducees actually comes from their enemies. Because in 70 AD, the Romans came in, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. And there were three main factions at that point, actually four if you include the Christian movement. Um, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the Essenes who live out in the desert, and then you have the Christian movement, the Jesus movement. Well, when the temple is destroyed, the Sadducees are finished. There's, there's no sacrificial system to follow. And what survives are the Pharisees, the rabbis. In fact, that's what we have today, rabbinic Judaism. So what we know about the Sadducees tends to come from the winners, them being the losers. And we, we're not, I don't think we have as clear a picture as we might want. But in this confrontation between the Sadducees and Jesus, we know exactly where they stand on the matter of the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. It is worth noting, just parenthetically, that even though the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like each other, they were agreed that they didn't like Jesus. And so they, op- they oppose him from different directions, but they are opposed to him. There is a difference, though. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the rabbis, had a different approach to dealing with Jesus than did the Sadducees. That is to say, the Pharisees and the experts in the law tried to paint him into a corner, like the issue of paying taxes. Because whatever answer he gives, he's going to be in trouble. The Sadducees don't do that. If you read this carefully, I don't think they're trying to paint him into a corner. They're trying to make him look ridiculous. They're trying to ridicule him. I mean, why seven brothers? Two would do, right? Why seven? Well, and by the way, and you can talk to Dave about this after the service, I would argue that pure materialists today take the same approach. That rather than engaging in fruitful discussion, they ridicule, they, they uh, slur. They don't actually engage in fruitful discussion. But that's for another sermon of Dave's. Um, 
The question is based on a passage in Deuteronomy 25. <clears throat> if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must, marry, must not marry outside the family. Her, brother's, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So if you have, let's say, two brothers, let's not be ridiculous, let's say two brothers, not seven, and the first one marries a woman, but before they can have any children, he dies. Well, the law was that she was to marry him, and the first son they had would belong to the brother who died. Okay? And then any children after that would be their children together, the second brother and the wife. The Sadducees think, since there's no resurrection, that after you die, life just sort of continues the way it is right now. So that if you're married to somebody now, and then you die, and then somehow you wake up, and then you're still married to this person, and if you're married to seven different men, well, that would, in fact, create some problems. So I said they try to ridicule Jesus. I would say rather than engage in a fruitful argument, they want to make him look ridiculous. If there is marriage in the afterlife, what is a woman going to do with two husbands, let alone seven? And Jesus gives them an answer. Look, if you would, at verses 24 to 27. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. What does Jesus do in his answer? First of all, he shows them why they are committing such a glaring error. They do not know the scriptures or the power of God. By the way, we're not sure, because what we have about the Sadducees is from their opponents. It seems that they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And so it's worth noting that Jesus did, in fact, then quote from the books of Moses as he's answering them. But they failed to understand what Moses had written. So, for example, what he wrote in Deuteronomy 23 about a man dying and his brother marrying the widow has nothing to do, says nothing about the afterlife or about resurrection. There are, in fact, passages in Scripture that deal with resurrection. But they're pure materialists, and they do not recognize that God has the power to raise the dead. And he has the power to raise the dead in such a way that marriage is no longer needed. It is no longer a part of existence. The second thing he does, he shows that marriage is not part of the afterlife. Um, and here Jesus does something interesting. He says they will be like the angels. Well, the Sadducees don't believe in angels. But if you're going to deal with a pure materialist, you can't fight or play or argue simply in their domain. 
if they say, no, I'm, everything has to be purely material, well, no, we, we don't play that. That's not the way it goes. And Jesus says, in fact, in the resurrection, people will be like the angels. That is to say, they will be immortal. There will be no death. Therefore, there will be no need of reproduction. There will be no need of marriage. God's people will be like the angels. Again, it seems unfair to bring up the issue of angels um, because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. But if they just open the first book of Moses, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Pretty obvious there. In Genesis 28, the story of Jacob's dream and the ladder. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then four chapters later in Genesis 32, when uh, Jacob is about to meet his brother and is quite fearful of the experience, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. So, yeah, there are angels, and Jesus does not let himself limit himself to the assumptions of his opponents. And then thirdly, Jesus proves the resurrection from Scripture. Look, if you would, again, verses 26 and 27. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living If, in fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob no longer have any existence, it would be folly, I think, for God to identify himself as their God. But some would disagree. They would say, no, this is simply God speaking historically. You know, Abraham, way back when, I was his God, he's gone now. Uh, And his son, Isaac, I was his God, but, you know, he's gone now. But no, what was the nature of the relationship between God and Abraham, God and Isaac, God and Jacob? He entered into a relationship with them, a covenant with them, an agreement with them. He chose them. He blessed them. He protected them. And above all, he loved them. It's no coincidence that our first hymn today was the God of Abraham praise. He is the God of Abraham. He is our God as well. The Sadducees should have seen that. But the fourth thing that Jesus does is he simply says, you are badly mistaken. I don't do Greek, but there, in Greek, this is only two words, badly mistaken. It's almost like forget the you are. It's just, yeah. you guys have missed the boat. They're wrong about the resurrection. They're wrong about the nature of scripture. They're wrong about the nature of reality because they're pure materialists. They are wrong about the nature of God who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, that's one set of opponents. It's still Tuesday, okay? A lot going on. Now we have a second person who comes up. He's a teacher of the law. And this is a little trickier because there's a part of me that wants to think this man is not an opponent, but this is someone who's quite sincere. Except when they're finished talking, that's it. Nobody... Nobody wants to deal with Jesus anymore. Um, he's, 
he has, quote unquote, defeated the Sadducees. If you look at it, he gave them a good answer. Verse number 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. In other words, slam dunk on the Sadducees. He was like, yeah, he answered them. Okay, so now, like you and I, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of deal. Uh, he wants to be on Jesus' side. Okay, so he says... Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Immediately, I thought again of Dave's sermon, because at the end, he asked, how many commandments are there? Because in the Garden of Eden, how many commandments were there? When Moses came down from Sinai, how many commandments were there? And here Jesus is asked, and there are two, okay? If I were to ask you, how many commandments there are, what would you answer? Would you say one or two or ten? The teachers of the law during the time of Jesus said that there were 613 commandments. Not one, two, or ten, but 613. 248 positive. Second one's easier to remember. 365 negative. 613 commandments. So when this expert in the law says, which is the most important, that's a little trickier than we might imagine. Because we might think of the Ten Commandments, you know, what are you talking, 613 commandments. What does Jesus answer? Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. By the way, this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's known as the Shema. It is the statement of monotheism. The Lord our God is one. And then, I think most people sort of forget about the second part. You're to love the Lord your God with all your, you know, all that kind of stuff. But for the Jewish people, verse number four of Deuteronomy 6 is the central tenet of the Jewish faith. Monotheistic, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that's the first commandment. Jesus said the second one is this, <clears throat> love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This, by the way, is taken from Leviticus chapter 19. It's not taken from the Deuteronomy passage. And it's found in an interesting context. Um, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Just parenthetically, um, I wonder how different our literary culture our cinematic culture, our culture in general would be if we really took this to heart, that we are not to seek revenge or to bear a grudge. I mean, how many movies would be worth watching if you can't get your revenge? I mean, that's what it's all about. And yet, that's not it. That's not the whole thing. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. What the expert of the law responds, I think, is fascinating. Look, if you would, at verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. By the way, there's a part of me that just thinks this is the height of arrogance. I mean, he's telling Jesus, yeah, you've done a good job there, Jesus. Anyway, 
Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. See, there it is. It's the central tenet of Judaism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, monotheism. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Um, By the way, who does offerings and burnt sacrifices? Sadducees. So this is one of those backhanded things. Yeah, good job there. You really told those Sadducees. Because to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, that's more important than what these yahoos are doing over at the temple. I don't want to ignore the emphasis from the teacher of the law because well, Jesus says, look at verse number 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Wow, what a statement. You're not far. But again, I don't want to ignore the emphasis. We hear it in Jesus and we hear it in the teacher and we should hear it in ourselves. And what is that? We are to love the Lord our God. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. That is the call of God's people. I don't know if this man was trying to trap Jesus. I don't know if he was trying to sort of sidle up to him against the Sadducees. In some sense, it, it doesn't matter because what Jesus said and what he affirms is what we need to affirm today. That as God's people... We are to love the Lord our God with our whole being. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. The Lord willing, I have strength. We'll look at this a bit further next week. I had hoped to go to the end of chapter 12. Um, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, the widow's might as she gives to the temple. Um, um, that's not up to it right now. Lord willing, we'll look at it next week. And it actually is wonderful preparation for chapter 13 when Jesus speaks of the coming destruction of the temple. I'm so grateful that you are all here today. Stephen Simone from Christ Presbyterian, the rest of you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in an age of materialism and not simply acquisition but a denial of of the reality that there are things we cannot see. There are things beyond our sensory apprehension. But we live in a world where that seemingly is denied left and right. And we live in a world which does not love you and as a consequence generally does not love its neighbor. In fact, we are marked by revenge and bearing grudges than by love. But if we are your people called to follow your son, may we be marked by love. May we love you as we should, though we confess freely that We generally don't. We need your spirit to love you as we should. And the demonstration of that love is to be seen in loving our neighbors as ourselves. 
I thank you for the wisdom we hear in Jesus. I thank you for the patience that we hear in him as well. May we take this to heart. I thank you for bringing me, for bringing Gia the past few weeks. Continue to heal us and give us strength. I thank you for this congregation that as we worship, we worship together as a congregation. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world which does not love, which ignores the things it cannot see. May we, by your grace, be light in a world of darkness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.